Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to need it here. I'd say it to your face, not say it to me now. I went down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you shawny man? Listen, I'm all for a bit of late melodrama in a game of football. And it was a lot of fun watching Liverpool fans completely lose their shit when John Moss awarded the second penalty to Spurs yesterday. But I can't help think Mo Salah's goal really would have been a nice way to end the match. You know the saying, that goal was worthy of winning a game of football? kind of feel that Mo Salah's goal was more worthy of ending a game of football than a contentious penalty, albeit Harry Kane did step up after missing one. Finish with a plum. Hello and welcome to Monday's Second Captain's Football Podcast. Hi, Ken. Hi, Kieran. Hey, on, how are you? Hello, on. Did you enjoy Salah's strike as much as I did, Ken? Not so much a strike as a. Oh. You know, just a piece of genius. Piece of magic. Piece of magic. It was a piece of magic, Murph, yeah. Mm. Let's it employ w- all the cliches. Worthy of winning any game of football. Piece of magic. It was. It was amazing. Wing wizardry. To, to do it in the last minute, especially, I mean, the or the, well, the 91st minute, um, having been running around like a lunatic for the entire game to still have the precision to be able to do that. I mean, the little shuffle that he, that takes him past Vertonghen, it was the same, he used the same dribble against Everton, I think when he scored that phenomenal goal uh, against them. I mean, you know, Carragher afterwards is comparing him to Messi. Like, yeah, the only person who scores that goal is, is Messi. Well, I mean, I can certainly imagine Messi scoring that goal. Yeah, that is true. Um, you know, otherwise, the unfortunate thing is for him is that City are having such a good season with De Bruyne. Otherwise, he'd be absolutely walking Player of the Year. Says Cargo. Well, there's also Harry Kane. I mean, you know, he he's pretty good as well. Yeah, I would say. Um, but you know, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting actually. Klopp did um, did uh, an interview with Oliver Holt um, in, in the Mail on Sunday, I think. Uh, you know, kind of for the game, I guess, and said that uh, Mo Salah, world-class, but not every day. Um, Sadio Mane, world-class, but not every day. Roberto Firmino, world-class, pretty much every day. Um, Firmino is the one he said is world-class every day. Every, pretty much every day. Right. Maybe not yesterday. Um, a world-class centre-forward might have scored the header that he missed from a, from a great cross by... Alexander Arnold, you know, but it's interesting. Klopp always, Klopp seeks to always seeks to sort of downplay teams that he doesn't want 
people talking about. You know, we've talked to Raphael Honigstein before about this. Like one, the the way to really annoy Jurgen Klopp, apart from like giving a penalty against him if you're the linesman, waving your flag, <laughs> ostentatiously stop. in his I, face. I'm, I'm sorry, guys, but I spotted something. I spotted Every, something. Everybody, you stop over here. Stop, stop, everyone. Yeah. Yeah, I know we're if, having fun, but... If, if you really want to annoy Jurgen Klopp, you go into the press conference, you say, oh, your players look very tired. Are you sure that your style of play isn't, <laughs> hasn't sapped the energy of your players a little, a little too much? That, that he, it really annoys him. But he hates this Superman Salah narrative. You know, he's been... Ever since Salah kind of started scoring a... You know, when he started getting into double figures, and it's like, this is kind of... This is, this is a bit more than just a hot streak for a few games. Mm. You know, this is like... He, well, this is very good. Well, I mean, surely the reason for that is is pretty evident. I mean, if you've been the Borussia Dortmund manager, then the last thing you want is one of your players to be elevated above everyone else. So, like, I mean, he wakes up in a cold sweat of, with the idea of Bayern Munich somehow yeah. signing Mo Salah tomorrow morning. Yeah, well, you know... It, that shit doesn't leave a man, Ken. Well, I, I, I mean, I don't know. Is, is Salah likely to leave this summer? I doubt it. I mean, he only just sort of arrived and everything seems to be going very well. So, uh, unless he's really in a hurry, <laughs> I imagine they'll they'll probably keep him for another, for another season and he kind of has to keep playing this way. You know, I mean, in terms of comparing him to Lionel Messi, it's like, yeah, that is... That was a messy-like performance. Now all he has to do is keep playing this way for the next 10 years. He just has to keep doing this for 10 years, and then he will be, you know, comparable with, uh, with Messi. But Klopp, Klopp doesn't like... Uh, it's interesting that he praises Firmino. I mean, maybe he just knows that Firmino isn't going to read the mail on Sunday. Maybe Firmino just pays so little attention. <laughs> to the entire sort of media environment, he just wants to, he's just focused on his own stuff that he's just not going to get, um, you know, big headed or whatever. But I actually think that what I think what's going on there is the Klopp is a little worried that in fact his team really do rely on Salah. I think that was quite evident yesterday because they had nothing really. I mean, aside from Salah scored two goals, and aside from that, was there a whole lot? I mean, there was a couple of chances that they could have done better with, but. They were never, they were never in control of the game. I mean, that was said to Klopp afterwards again. He was like, "Well, you can't control the game against Tottenham." I mean, Man City did. You know, maybe again, you can't compare us to Man City, um, but it can be done. Yeah. We've we've seen it done. It, it, your team wasn't good enough to do it. Was what was what we saw. I mean, particularly in the absence of Coutinho now, it's like this. You know, there's there's a bit of a shortage of inspiration here, apart from what Salah is doing and, and without that it would have been a very bad day for Liverpool Okay it's time for my favourite slot on the second captain's podcast I mean we've only had it once last week but it's already my favourite it's called Shame the Sponger <laughs> created by World Service member Owen Farrelly who correctly pointed out that it's time to name and shame in his words the Monday spongers who latch on to the independent member-led journalism rations you generously dole out <laughs> Good God <laughs> End Lord. quote My wife and Merce brother have been successfully shamed named and shamed Successfully well, let's let's delve into that for a moment, Don. Oh, we haven't heard yet from your brother. Well, no, I mean, does successfully mean that we have shamed them, but that we haven't got them to subscribe yet? I oh, mean, yeah. I, I would say a successful shaming is, is requires my brother to sign up. Oh, that is true. I'm taking it easy. Not yet done holding that. it. Okay. Well, that's a double go. double shaming for your brother. Who have we got this week? Murph, please do the honors and shame the sponger. Well, I'm talking to you the way I want to talk to you. You have a problem? Turn off your station. Hi guys, love the show and a fervent listener to the paid podcast, writes Brian Sheehan. 
Living in Sydney, it's my main link to all this sport back home, and I get my fix of all the GA Six Nations in Premier League previews. It would be my pleasure if you'd call out one freeloading Robert Kinsella, who brazenly and unashamedly at a party on Australia Day, asked me the reaction on the show in relation to the Nations League draw. This, of course, was discussed much to the enjoyment of all the loyal and supportive Second Captains listeners during the week, away from the prying ears of all the freeloading Monday sponges. I took my chance to call him out there and then, but feel like the point didn't hit home, and the man needs to be publicly named and shamed. Love the show. Keep up the good work. Cheers, Brian Sheehan. Well, thank you, Brian. Nice done, Brian. Consider Robert Kinsella. That's Robert Kinsella. Kinsella, Successfully is it? named and shamed. Yes, Robert. Kinsella. Yeah, first name, Robert. Robert, you know, the secondcaptains.com, it only takes a couple of minutes, man. Come on, you can join in all those conversations with your mates. Five euro a month. And you can get it done right now. Let's report on sport, please, Ken. Was the Saligal definitely the best goal of the match? Oh, well, I suppose. That's, yeah. It's a very different type of goal to the Wanyama. screamer by Wanyama. Did the Wanyama goal remind you of anything? What a hit, Stephen Gerrard. Um, it reminded me immediately of Sunday Elisa's goal in the 1998 World Cup against Spain. There was a specific reason for it. I mean, number one, the nature of the the shot, the uh, the nature of the situation. I mean, I don't know if Fernando Hierro ever played for Spain again after that disgrace. I heard Jamie Redknapp. Uh, he would have just he, he just caught that ball that Loris Carius punched, you know, a solid twenty five yards from his goal um, before it was lashed back in uh, over his head. Uh, he should have just caught that. <laughs> Mark Lawrence is saying this is what you get with a lot of foreign goalkeepers you know I want to sit on with this foreign goalkeeper foreign thing. goalkeepers how do you even know I mean so many th- foreign goalkeepers is there a is there a thing I mean is this is Mark Lawrence seriously still living in like uh, the 1970s the Polish the Polish goalkeeper Clown at Prince. Wembley yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that what's happening here I mean so unorthodox he punches like what are, you know what's he supposed to do catch it and fumble it in the six yard box but don't Get forget the, the sick De Gea was getting in his first few months at Man United oh I remember that absolutely dropped the ball in the snow at Tottenham one time yeah, that was well, it that's it he's gone he's, he's too flaky um, I actually thought he played he played quite well overall but the thing the, there was the shot by um, the shot by Wanyama but also the sound effects it's good to get a goal with sound effects. I mean, I couldn't get a great audio clip of, of Sunday Elisa, but here's, just listen to Sunday Elisa scoring the goal. And what I'm listening out for here is you can hear the noise of the, the ball cracking off the post. Right. Well, you should be able to. Elisa! Oh, my but word! That is what I would consider to be a satisfying sound of a ball cracking yeah, off a post. Nice. But I was reminded of it by... I going to watch the goal here. Wanyama goal was the, the way that the net rattled. The ball went in so fast that everyone in the stadium could hear the net rattle before the cheer went up. So it was, it was a pretty... Uh, the ball also rebounded moment. off the net. Back yeah. outside the penalty it's area. It's like the net's yeah, too tight. Like that was yeah. But he lifted the whole, like you could hear, there was a, like a metallic rattle. He kind of lifted the whole structure physically off the ground before the ball was flung back Yeah, out there was the like net. the sound of the net rattling, but then also the stanchion appeared to have been affected in some way. That, that was nearly lifted out of the ground, such was the ferocity of the shot. Yeah, so I'm not sure that, that I'd really hold it against Loris Carius any more than I'd hold it against Fernando Hierro for teeing up Sunday at least at that time. Uh, I don't know if he got slaughtered 
uh, slaughtered for it afterwards. And I did have to rewatch the goal in order to see which Spanish player it was that headed the ball, that <laughs> set the ball so nicely uh, for Sunday Elise. But put it on the kicking tee for Sunday Elise. But it ended up. I mean, Klopp. Another thing Klopp had said in that interview was that you know he it's great when he when we play Tottenham because it's like uh, you know like against City. It's like when the two guys put their face armor down and go at each other in a joust. So he was like using this courtly metaphor, um, you know, a kind of a the age of chivalry. Uh, two teams who really play the game the right way, which makes it kind of hilarious that it descended into possibly the most acrimonious end of season. You know, with, with Pochettino clearly responding to Klopp's over-celebration. Yeah. Uh, Deli Alley being booked for diving. Uh, Harry Kane being accused of diving by Virgil van Dijk. Uh, and the and Klopp going completely crazy with the with the officials, um, and you know the, again whole debate over what happened and what should have happened and what we can say is that if there had been a video assistant referee, it's very difficult to know what would have happened. Anything it, it could have happened exactly as it did. Or all the decisions could have been changed. Yeah, sure. And all the ex-referees disagreeing with each other and saying different things. Well, this, things is, this, the this media is the point. This I, is I think we can, the only thing we could say with certainty is that it would have added at least 12 minutes onto <laughs> the game time. This, well, although it took long enough as it was. <laughs> I know. And, and in fact, and in fact the, the, the conversation between uh, John Moss and Eddie Smart featured John Moss asking the fourth official, I think it was Martin Atkinson, saying, have you got anything from TV, Martin? Uh, as he as he gives the first penalty, this is the one that that which had the extended consultation. Mm. Now, um, Sky had Dermot Gallagher, former referee, and his opinion on the first penalty was as follows. Yeah, the first one's very interesting in so much as uh, Kane is in an offside position. The ball was played through to him, and Lovren quite clearly has a chance to clear the ball and takes that opportunity. You see, as, as the ball's played through. At this point here, Kane is offside. Lovren takes a chance to play the ball. He's got an ample opportunity to clear it as a footballer has. He doesn't clear it. He, miss, he, he miscontrols it and he hits the ball. There's no doubt about that. The ball goes on and it comes to Kane, who's then not offside because the law allows him to play on. And Karras takes him down with his shoulder. So it's a penalty. So it's a penalty, says Dermot Gallagher, former referee. But Mark Lattenberg, writing about this in The Times, says it should not have been a penalty because it was offside. So then says it's difficult to hear your it's difficult to hear your assistants on the headsets at Anfield, which is why Moss went over to talk to his assistant. The issue is not whether it touched the defender, but whether he played it deliberately. A professional footballer would not have played it into Kane's path on purpose. From the way he was facing, if he had, if it had been delivered, the ball would have gone up the field. You can make an argument that Lovren would not have made this type of offend for the, uh, attempt for the ball if Kane was not close to him, and therefore the impact of his presence plays a part in the decision-making of the referee. I mean, my opinion of it when I saw it was, how can that not be offside? Because Lovren is pa- making a panicky, panicky clearance, which he doesn't make unless Kane is the, standing there in, in what is an offside position. You know, it's if Kane is not there, then there's no there's no panic. There's no there's no rush. There's no there's no panic. He doesn't he doesn't sort of hack at the ball in the way that he does. But he's there. He's not sure if Kane is offside. He thinks that he's got to stop the ball from getting near Kane, and in in fact plays it to him. Now then then it's like okay, but he's played the ball to Kane, therefore Kane isn't offside. Um, but I don't think that should. I mean, 
if that's the if that's the rule, then you can't really ever be interfering with play until you sort of touch the ball. You know what I mean? It's like I don't think that defenders can be expected to. It's like well, Lovren could just could just leave that ball to run through, and Kane is offside. You know, <laughs> that's fairly risky from Lovren. You know, <laughs> he he lets that ball deliberately run under Roll his run under longer, his foot, yeah. a ball which it's a it's an attempted pass. To, to Harry Kane, you know, that's what the mm. that's what the pass is. Harry Kane's offside, so to me that should be offside at that at that point. But um, there is, a, in general, in football, there seems to be quite a generous interpretation of what constitutes interfering with play in those situations. Yeah, uh, like, yeah I, I agree with you. Like, a, a lot of goals that end up being given, you're thinking, well, of course, by their nature, they're, they're in the goalkeeper's eye line a lot of the time. They're just by being there, you're interfering with play. You're ready to do something, you know. Mm. Um, but so I, I don't know if it's inconsistent. If that decision is too inconsistent with uh, with how the interpretation generally is. In well, football. you're t- you're t- you're certainly affecting you know Lovren's opinion of what's happening in the game by standing where yeah. you are. You know what I mean? It's like, it's so you are gaining an advantage because you're putting him into a oh my god a, a Lovren panic. You know a sort of my God, no! You know, so so that is that is an advantage that he's gained by being in an offside position. I would have thought. I mean, you're you're allowed to gain all kinds of advantages by standing in an offside position. Uh, you know, in the more liberalised offside. I mean, the most obvious one being that a centre forward can walk up almost to the edge of the box or whatever, miles offside, wait for the ball to be played out to the wing, mm. and then sort of be in position ahead of defenders who are. Who are who are running back or be be ready to make a burst to where he thinks he needs to be in the box? I mean, so he's clearly gaining an advantage in the terms of he's sort of done the work of getting into the penalty area while offside. But it's not a, it's not a case of interfering with play in that he hasn't sort of put anybody off. You know what I mean? So it's it's I don't know. But but what the what it means is that if there had been a VAR, they might not have been able to decide, or they might have given a decision. It can go one way or the other. It's either penalty or it's not, and. There's still arguments on either way to say, well, you, you've just given the wrong decision. You hear two referees have different opinions of what they've just seen. Um, the second one seemed to me a simple one. It's, it's, it's a foul by Virgil van Dijk on Eric Lamella. Even though he's not... Tr- it's one of those weird ones where the player comes at him at, uh, yeah. from a, a, almost unsighted. I don't think there's any doubt about it, in fact. Uh, that, you can't just that, go around swiping. No, you can't. You can't. I mean, it's, it's too bad. It's too bad for you if, you're, if your attempt to clear the ball instead hits a player who's just got in front of you between you and the ball. I mean, that's a foul. That's what, All fouls are like that. Like, what, a, what other kind of foul is there? You're trying, you're going for the ball. I mean, assuming you're going for the ball, there's also the, the ball was there, I think, type foul. But usually the ball is there. And someone's, some meat yeah. <laughs> gets in the way. Meat gets in the way. And, and then you give, you give away a penalty. But then there's doubt about this because Lamella is offside just as the ball is played by Fernando Llorente. So it's like, okay, maybe that... Maybe the what appeared to be the more cut and dry penalty, in fact, shouldn't have been given for an offside. Maybe that would have been ruled out by VAR. But you know, like again, here we are talking about this stuff. Um, I do wonder how much longer they can continue to have these uh, friendly derbies between Liverpool and Tottenham. I don't think there's going to be any more of them. Actually, I think we're beginning to see a toxic rivalry emerge. It's good. It's it's testament to the progress both clubs have made <laughs> that we're beginning to see some real hatred in their relationship. That's probably a good thing, isn't it? Um, I don't know if it is. I mean, I don't. I don't think it ultimately does much for the quality of the games. Actually, 
you know, um, I mean, the, the game yesterday wasn't that good a game. It was it, it was an amazing last few minutes, but before then it was very it was very mechanical, not a creative game at all. Two very hyped up teams, really kind of closing down spaces, and it was only when they got too tired to actually do that 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 the interesting part of the game began. You know, so. Maybe if the teams can be fitter, or maybe if it was an earlier part of the season. I mean, I saw Kevin De Bruyne's quote about, you know, you feel he's complaining now that he's feeling tired. Uh, he still played really well against Burnley, but you know, he's saying you feel great for ten games, then you feel okay for ten games, and then after that, you feel like shit. So they're into the point of the season where everybody feels terrible now, and um, you know, no, there's they're... four more. Oh no, wait, no, yeah, he's sorry. Excuse me, he's bang slap in the middle. Now his his methodology there would suggest that for 18 games you feel like shit which is pretty much half the season oh more than well it's 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 10, uh, 10 I mean, games it's, you feel great he, 10 games he didn't specify like... he didn't specify only league games you know I mean he's been playing wow. they've, they've played every game they can play so far so he enjoys August and September that's basically saying. it he's not yeah. feeling great <laughs> once you're hitting middle then of October then it, it becomes difficult I mean Guardiola had six players on the bench you know I don't know why he didn't just put a young player on the bench so that they could have the experience of being in the team obviously that was more important to him to make the point you know he said oh we you know our, our U team had a game yesterday whatever come on you know they would have been able to to go along it's not like although again there was a chance maybe of one of them playing it would they, they wouldn't have played in the game as it turned out because it was a much closer game than City would have liked and you know but if City had been 3-0 up you know, that would have been a moment when, when you could have brought someone on. I should just go back to Harry Kane, though, because he's done one of those Players' Tribune stories, which I still read with a certain fascination, even though it's always the same story. I mean, it's it's always the same narrative. It's like, I was a kid with a dream. There was an adult who helped me out. Now I'm on top. <laughs> But I won't forget those who helped me get here. You know, that's, <laughs> every single story is the same. But um, in, in Harry Kane's case, it's his dad and also Tom Brady. Ah, oh, lovely. Loser Tom Brady. And timely. Yeah. Uh, Tom Brady uh, is was Harry Kane's biggest non-parental Tom Brady's not a loser if he just lost last night's match. Hmm. He's a loser at the last time of asking, Owen. Yeah. Um, Current record in the last 15 days of American football. Played one last one. Played one last one. But but as uh, as Harry Kane, Harry Kane is a big NFL nut, um, and he uh, and he's talking about when he was on loan at Leicester and not doing too well, and sitting on the bench and thinking, oh no, I can't, uh, I can't even play for Leicester. How am I going to play for Tottenham in the Premier League? This is when Leicester win the Championship, you know. But then he was at home sitting in his flat. And I was really getting into the NFL. If I wasn't training, I was playing Madden or watching New England Patriots videos on YouTube. So one day I happened to stumble on this documentary on Tom Brady. And it's all about the six quarterbacks who were taken before him in the NFL draft. It turns out Tom Brady was the 199th pick in his draft class. Imagine that. It just blew my mind. But in a good way. The film really struck a chord. Everyone was doubting Tom his whole life. This is, a, this is a, uh, another a common feature of mm. athlete psychology in the Players' Tribune. Um, you are, you always feel as though everyone around you is doubting you all the time. Mm. And and this, this appears to make up a disturbingly high proportion of your mental activity. This suspiciously looking around at people going, you don't even really believe in me. I presume you, in general, you would 
prove those doubters wrong, though, right? Well, he's proven those doubters wrong. Obviously, Arsenal, Arsenal, the, the first great doubters, when young Harry was off playing on an area of green land uh, at the age of eight, when suddenly his dad came over and informed him that he'd just been released by Arsenal. But never mind, Harry, we'll find you another club. Harry was, uh, it didn't even occur to Harry to be really depressed. He only started getting depressed and starting to think maybe all the doubters out there were right when he was at Leicester and he couldn't play for them. And he um, read his first Players' Tribune article. Well, no, he didn't have the Players' Tribune in, in, in Leicester. This is, this is a few years ago. But they showed a picture of him being weighed by the scouts before the end. This is Harry Kane talking about Tom Brady. Him being weighed by the scouts before the NFL draft. And he's got a shirt off. And it's so funny because he's just looking like a regular guy, you know? And this See, one, I've seen the photograph. It is quite funny. This one coach says, we're looking at this Brady kid and he's tall and gangly and he looks like he's never seen a weight room. He reminded me of me. People were always making the same assumptions about me. You know, he doesn't look like a proper striker. So uh, it was generally inspiring to me. So Tom Brady helped to create this uh, monster uh, that, that we now know as Harry Kane, the second fastest uh, player to 100 Premier League goals after Shearer, you know, <laughs> which, is, which, is, which is pretty amazing. Um, talks about a time when a Millwall player tried to bully him. He says, uh, Oi, Harry. I said, yeah. He said, I haven't gotten any yellow cards yet. I said, uh, all right. He said, that's good, because I'm about to use one on you. But what does Harry Kane do? Elbows him in the ribs, Oof. then steps over his prone body, just to let him know that he wasn't going to be uh, wasn't going to be bullied. He, this is Harry Kane realizing that life doesn't hand it to you. You've got to stand up for yourself and take it. And uh, Villas Boas tried to send him out on loan. Oh, Harry, you will go on loan. And he said. He said, uh, I don't want to go. Villas Boas, as the words were coming out of my mouth, I thought, oh, wow, maybe that wasn't. He just kind of looked at me a bit confused. And then I just came straight out with it. I'm going to prove to you that I should be starting on this team. And you can tell me every Friday before the game that I don't deserve that and I'm not going to play. And that's fine. But I don't want to go. And so Villas Boas says, all right. Doesn't actually use him, but then Tim Sherwood does. And then, you know, obviously things went from there. He does give one insight. In, I mean, he talks about Pochettino, what a great manager he is. But uh, I, I was a bit perplexed by this story. On maybe you can throw a bit of light on it for me. He says, "One of my this is Harry Kane. One of my fondest memories in football is when I scored a hat trick a few seasons ago. And Maurizio called me into his office after the match. At the time, I'd say we were close, but not super close. I wasn't sure what he wanted, so I opened the door, and he's sitting there at his desk with a glass of wine, probably a nice Malbec or something. Big smile on his face, and he waves me in and he says, "Come on." Let's get a picture. So he's got his arm around me with his glass of wine in the other hand, and we're taking a photo. It was brilliant. That was the first time I thought, wow, this is a special person. He's a fantastic, fantastic man. I respect him as a manager and as a boss, of course, but he's really my friend outside of football as well. He's the reason why our squad has become so close. We're genuine mates, and I think that's rare in football these days. It's lovely. But I don't, I don't understand what Pochettino's done there. Just brought him in, taking a... Photograph. Did they both have a glass of wine? I mean, did Pochettino just have a glass of wine for himself, or did he give Harry Kane one? Did they have a glass of wine when they took the photo? Was it just a photo? What was so? What's so? Oh, what's so amazing about what's so moving about this? Taken. I don't. I don't get what's so important about. Why is that? How is this one of Harry Kane's fondest memories in football? As opposed to something he just forgot about that afternoon. It seems as though maybe the manager's office is. A sacrosanct place while they're enjoying their glass of wine. 
just being in there. Maybe the picture was just an out of detail, but just the fact that he gets to go in and watch his manager drink some wine. Yeah. Presumably, they must have been playing Arsenal or something and Wenger didn't want to go in and share a glass of wine. So yeah. it was a free spot and he brought a Harry Kane in, one of his younger players. Every time he plays against Arsenal, he thinks, we'll see who was right and who was wrong. And then he scores and he goes, I was right, you were wrong. Uh, so that's... <laughs> uh, it, works for, it works for Harry. Uh, speaking of Arsenal, actually, this is very good. Um, did you see Mesut Ozil, uh, Mesut Ozil tweeting afterwards? Very, uh, what was it? It was, uh, it was almost tantric uh, in his, he feels as though Arsenal have really hit a state of flow. Mm-hmm. It's like um, a brilliant performance from the team today. Creative, delightful, free-flowing football. I'm feeling positive now for the upcoming challenges. So, um, yeah, I mean, Mkhitaryan with a kind of immediate impact, three assists uh, on his um, well it wasn't actually his, his debut his home debut I guess um, including a goal from Aubameyang that was offside but you know a brilliant finish and then a, um, a huge or, or a big sort of attack on the team afterwards from Sam Allardyce I mean Sam Allardyce has got, has got four points from the last six matches I think Everton already have too many points to actually get relegated like they're in the top half for instance yeah uh, even though they're, I mean, I think it's, it's uh, is it a seven-point gap to the relegation zone? Um, which isn't usually you would expect if you were in 10th place to be a little bit further away from the relegation zone than that. Um, but it's, it seems that things are going quite badly now. Having, having originally, or when, when Allardyce arrived, sort of being a, been, been a, you know, improved slightly since Koeman arrived, now just things are actually even almost worse. Uh, I, I noticed the last week that he criticised Davy Class, and I mean he criticised a few of his players for the decisions they made on deadline day. He criticised Lookman for going to Red Bull Leipzig, and then he criticised Davy Klassen for not going to Napoli. Uh, and he said that the problem um, with Davy Klassen was putting money ahead of football, as in staying around picking up your paycheck or anything. Yeah, there was some dispute involving David Klassen's image rights where if he had gone to uh, Napoli, uh, there, there was there was some dispute. Essentially, it seemed as though Klassen was going to lose out financially from this and they couldn't agree uh, on the terms. But Allardyce's opinion was that he should have gone to play football. I, I would have always done that. you know. So when you're actually being criticized by Sam Allardyce for being, <laughs> for being too greedy, it's kind of... It's it's an uh, uncomfortable position. And meanwhile, Lookman was being criticised for going to Leipzig instead of staying in England, saying, "Oh, well, this is a real, uh, you know, if you're an English lad over there, you don't speak the language. You know, it's very difficult." Uh, Oliver Burke couldn't wait to get out of there. Oliver Burke, the Scottish player who went to Leipzig, Lookman scores on his uh, debut for Leipzig, so things seem to be going okay so far. Yeah, Paul Lambert, another Scotsman, did okay in Germany. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 just, I mean, you talk about trying. It, it is interesting. There there are a few. There are more English players now playing abroad outside England than there have been for a long time. And it's because they can't get into the Premier League anymore. I mean, it's this, the same thing is happening to English young players as has been happening for a while to Irish young players. There are too many. The Premier League is too globalized. There's too much talent from too many countries. The competition, the level of competition is too high. And if you're young, it's very difficult. You, maybe you're good enough. But you know, you could be like Harry Kane, and the manager's like, "Well, you're 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 like the best striker in the under twenty one team, so obviously you're going on loan because you know I've got to get someone better than you, like Soldado, you know." Um, but 
I, I think you got to be a bit more encouraging than Allardyce about it. I mean, the idea, filling people's heads with, with the notion that, like, oh, if you don't speak German, what are you doing in Germany? You know, it's possible to get by even if you don't speak it. And it's also possible to learn. It is actually possible to learn the language. You know what I mean? I mean, players have different levels of facility. I mean, everyone can think of, of I mean, there's guys like Aguero or Tevez or Roberto Firmino who continue to speak you know, Spanish or Portuguese, even years after being in English football. But equally, there are you know plenty of players who pick it up quickly. So who's to say Lukman isn't going to be one of those guys who can maybe pick up some a few words of German and get yeah, by? He was just sore and, that he lost them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also out. Germany. I think I he mean, went to send him alone anyway. He's yeah. just complaining that, complaining that he's going to Germany, like this oh, far off land. All right, okay, well, that is a bit ridiculous. Um, it just, you know, I don't know. Uh, the other thing, what was it? There was Manchester United were playing on um, Saturday. There was a bit of drama in the fact that Mourinho made some big changes to the team, you know, and took Pogba out, which was like, I mean, that is, that's. Uh, I thought that was interesting, but he took him out. I don't know what he made of it. He he made a point about dropping Pogba. It was clearly a, I'm the boss, you know, I'm I've got the authority. I decide whether or not you play. You don't get to play because you're Pogba. You get to play because I think that you should be in the team. And after the way that he played against Tottenham, he obviously went to make this point. That wasn't good enough. You need to do better. So he leaves Pogba out. But he left him out against Huddersfield. Number one, I think it's kind of... I mean, if, if Mourinho had left Pogba out of a really big match, then that would have been a big point. This was kind of more sort of, I'll get away with this. I'm making the point, but I don't really have to pay the price of making the point. If you and see what it's I mean. pro- probably no harm resting him anyway. So that he's fresher for bigger games. In a sense, although I think it might have been a useful kind of game for him to play in, given that he's going to be on the ball the whole time. And, you know, like he's probably going to get the most touches of any player in this match, given the way that Huddersfield are going to approach it and the fact that he'll be the he'll be the guy starting all the moves. And this might be just the sort of performance, just the sort of stage that he would need to have a good game. Um but, you know, the interesting thing afterwards is Mourinho then unfavorably, unfavorably comparing Old Trafford to Portsmouth, as he says. Uh, I remember Portsmouth when I first came here. Small stadium, but oh, the passion those guys had. I mean, obviously, he remembers Portsmouth from when they were playing against Chelsea. You know, that was that would have been one of the bigger games of the season uh, at Portsmouth. But, I mean, it's obviously not the first time that he's criticized the Old Trafford atmosphere. I wonder if the, you know, this, obviously what he's trying to do is stoke it. It's like what he does with players, you know, like this provocative, provocative leadership or whatever he calls it. He criticizes the player and then he's, then it's up to the player to prove him wrong. So it's up to 76,000 people at Old Trafford to show that they can be as good as Portsmouth uh, the next time. Although I I do, I I kind of admire in a way his willingness to just criticize his own supporters. I mean, because I do think it's the riskiest thing that he does, like politi- politically speaking, you know. But he uh, he uh, he he's he does a lot more of it than I think any other manager I can think of. I mean, so many times this has happened. Well, he has done it at Sanford Bridge, as, as Conte has. Yeah, I, th- I think a couple of Chelsea managers have spoken out about the, needing a bit more from the fans. Yeah, well, it's cer- always risky. Yeah. Certainly, certainly, Jose. I don't think the Chelsea fans liked it. I'm not sure the Manchester United fans do, but for the moment, he's he's stocking them up, and it's a case of prove me wrong. That's it for today's report on sport.
kick, he punched the fan, Eric Cantona has jumped in and sees a kung fu kick, a fan, Manchester United fans are coming across, I have never seen as disgraceful an incident as that in all my years in football, Eric Cantona should be thrown out of the game for that sort of incident, I care not one jot about his supreme talent, he launched himself six feet into the crowd and kung fu kicked a supporter. Let's talk a little bit more now about the uh, incredible game yesterday. We've got Rory Smith in the New York Times to chat about Jurgen Klopp's post-match comments. Rory, he said, if I said what I think, I would pay the biggest fine in world football. What do you think he wants to say about what transpired yesterday? I think it's maybe good that he doesn't say anything because I'm not quite sure what the, other than the heat of the moment, what, what the Liverpool complaints are on the grounds that the second penalty, the one that was actually scored, was, was a penalty. And I, I, I realise there's a bit of kind of debate about about how the decision was reached, but surely if you if you watch it, it's 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 not you know it's not GBH or anything. But Van Dijk does make contact with Lamella. There is a, a suspicion of offside, I suppose, but it's fractional. And I'm not entirely sure that that I don't think managers sort of having a go at referees is ever a great look. And I think in this instance, it's it, it's still not a great look. So I think. It's probably for the best that Jurgen Klopp is, is biting his tongue to an extent, although it's a, it's a very cowardly way to do it. To, to, and I like Klopp a lot, but to, it's, it's a bit of a Mourinho move to say, oh, if I said what I wanted to say, then I'd get fined. You managed to not get fined, but you are clearly criticising the referee anyway. Yeah, and, and to be fair, like some of the stuff that he was doing was, was, was pretty annoying. Uh, I mean, he, he was on the field. Okay, he could say he was pulling his players away, but then he... He went into the ref and seemed to shout, shout whatever whatever the players are saying. It looked every bit as bad, you know. There's a general sort of behaviour of Klopp on the sideline. I wonder uh, if if you feel this is becoming an issue for him. I mean, I'm not talking so specifically about the you know the having to take a 95th minute second penalty in 10 minutes equaliser. It's obviously a difficult one for anyone to take, but. Is his sideline behaviour actually becoming an issue? I know that it is for lots of people on Twitter who are like, oh, look, at Klopp has done this again. He should be banned if this was, you know, Jose Mourinho and so on and so forth. But, like, there is a kind of a pattern of behaviour there that you could see the, the, the celebration, for instance, of Maurizio Pochettino was clearly giving it straight back to Klopp. The other managers don't like what they're seeing. No, and I think it's the same with Conte to an extent. Uh, that, that There is a... Again, you don't want to personalise it particularly, you don't want to sound too critical, it's not something that, that bothers me particularly, I, I, I can understand why why the other managers would find it annoying, but then most managers do things in the technical area in victory that maybe other people might find annoying, I wonder if there's a degree of honour amongst thieves about it that there's kind of an acceptance that you probably go overboard sometimes if and, and they will, will go overboard sometimes I do, I personally feel maybe it's me being a dour Yorkshireman, but I, I kind of personally feel that you should you should rein it in a little bit generally and partly because things like yesterday can happen where where Klopp celebrates, you know, like they've won the game and then two minutes later they haven't won the game. Yeah, he ended up doing the Slavin Bilic on it from yeah. uh, from Euro 2008. <laughs> you look a little bit silly. So no, I mean, and I don't personally have a problem with managers showing passion, in inverted commas. I think that, that maybe it, in, in life in general we should all maybe try and be a little bit more reserved. I mean, I know it's 2018 and this is the sharing age, but I think that... I don't think it's a great thing for any manager to do. I don't have a pro- it doesn't offend me or anything, but I can see why it might be problematic for the people who have to have to look at it. But then 
there is an element of, you know, he who is without sin cast the first stone. All managers, I think, are prone to over-celebration at times. It's just that Klopp does it fairly consistently. Yeah, you've got to give him a bit of a pass on yesterday, though, don't you? I mean, and even those post-match comments about the referee, like on an emotional level, you can see why somebody would be through the roof with two two decisions, whatever way you look at them. Certainly, a manager's always going to feel like they're the aggrieved party when they concede a penalty. And, and to concede two in those kind of circumstances, having scored what they thought was going to be the winner, I think we'd all be a little bit emotional. Yeah, I think you can understand him being emotional. And, and Ken mentioned sort of banning, you know, the, the, this call to ban him. What are, you, what are you banning him for? What would you, for being excited? Is that, you, you can't you're, ban him. You're for banning you him, ban him to even up the scales. Everybody needs to get banned. Jose well, it, was banned, Wenger was banned. Well, it's, it's time to ban Klopp. Isn't it? it's, it's, oh, if, if Mourinho did it, but Mourinho did do it and didn't get banned. That's, I mean, to be honest, that's kind of where it all came from, is, is the sprint down the touchline at Old Trafford in 2004. That, that There's this idea, I, I, I find that whole what if Mourinho did this thing, uh, which maybe would make quite a good bracelet like those, what would Jesus do things? <laughs> what, what if Mourinho had done this? And you've got to think of what the punishment would be. But it's, it's just such a banal and pathetic way of looking at the world that well, if Jose had done this, then then he'd be in trouble. I, I, I don't think you can, you can ban Klopp for being overexcited. I think someone maybe should say to him, look, you don't need to do it every time. It kind of, it kind of reduces the impact a little bit when you do it every time. But at the same time, you can't, that's who he is. That's what he's like. That's kind of that's to, to an extent. That's his. That's his secret. Is that kind of effervescent excitability is what what makes Klopp the character that he is, and I think that does have an impact on on his managerial style and his players. So it's it's not fair to to take it away from him in the same way as, as if he stopped Mourinho being churlish or Pep Guardiola looking like a philosopher, then then maybe they'd they'd struggle a bit more as well. So I'm not entirely sure what you can what he should be in trouble for particularly, but it does kind of show that. That yeah, you, you, let's not do this, these things prematurely. You know, wait until the game is over to celebrate. Mm. And the other, the other thing is, in terms of the post-match comments, I do have an issue with it because I think all managers should be banned from talking about referees. Yeah, they should. I think that, that, that this whole thing, and it's it's been I've got nothing original to say on it particularly, but this whole thing about VAR and about or VAR, I forget which one is the, the, the we're meant to be calling it, but robot referees. Uh, and the endless criticism and abuse for referees is, 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 has now got to a stage where it is, it's beyond a joke. And the managers are responsible for it because they're the ones who every time they get anything happens that they don't like, they blame the referee. The, the referees well, generally and and the broadcasters, Rory, as well. I don't know. I mean, you'd have a better, yeah. a better handle on the, the written press and all that side of it. But the broadcasters, I mean, that's, that's all. They, they asked their obligatory couple of questions about what some generic stuff from the game and then it's into decisions even if they aren't that contentious they're looking yeah. for it in the post-match interviews yeah and, and I throw the written press in there as well at the, at the risk of sort of poacher turned gamekeeper the yeah I think that the, the entire kind of media industrial complex around football is responsible I, I do think it stems from the managers because the managers are the ones who are so willing to to use that it's used actually Klopp to be fair to him I think after the Everton Cup game when there was the irony of Liverpool getting a soft penalty after Everton in the lead derby had dropped the soft penalty. Mm. And after the Everton penalty, Allardyce had said, oh, you can't have your hands on a player in the box, so it's definitely a penalty. Allardyce then comes out after basically the same penalty is given to Liverpool and says, oh, no, it's not a penalty. It's never a penalty. What are you talking about? Which was this sort of case study in managerial hypocrisy. Klopp did have the decency to say it, it was a soft penalty. They were both soft penalties. And I think that was right, that they were both soft penalties. But the... It stems from the managers who've used who use it as an excuse because 
it makes them not responsible for defeats or draws in this case. So it's not their fault. So they can't get sacked. And that's fair enough. The fans latch onto it because fans like feeling um, hard done to rather than that their team might be flawed. And the media and the broadcasters love it because it means you don't actually have to talk about football. And that's something that in Britain we're not particularly good at. We don't want to we don't want to ask questions about tactics. You still get the sort of hissing resentment when you ask a, a, even vaguely tactical question in, in a press conference. It's much easier to say, you know, steam in Jurgen Klopp last night roared at the referee. And that's that's kind of the standard of the coverage 99% of the time. I just think it'd be easier if they, if they came out and said, look, you can't do this anymore. It's making a really difficult job essentially impossible. And you start seeing things like, you know, online abuse. And we've, we've seen in other spheres other than football, how quickly online abuse becomes actual death threats and how how kind of valid they are, I don't know. But the atmosphere around referees now is not healthy. It's completely toxic. And what's amazing and what's the evidence of football's incredible immaturity is that we've been banging on about getting video assistance for 30 years, for as long as I've been alive. And now we've got it and everyone's complaining because it's not perfect. Mm. So what's going to happen is that eventually you're going to have an Android in charge and people will be saying, oh, well, he's not programmed correctly. It's pathetic, and it's some, something has to be done. And the responsibility is not with the referees; it's with the fans and the media and the managers. If we just put a moratorium on that conversation, things would improve. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's do that. Although I, I just do want to mention that I saw Mark Lawrence last night, almost the day two, uh, with, uh, with a, a bunch of slow motion uh, replays of the first penalty, um, not come to a decision, and then say, "Well, it just shows we need VAR." And so you literally just failed to say what happened after sitting for three minutes with slow motion replays uh, and all you ad- advise is bringing in replay analysis in order to help these decisions. But in terms of what actually happened on the field, uh, Tottenham, what, what are the, the interesting thing about it was how much Tottenham dominated the game. You know, yeah, I've, I, not, I've not seen Liverpool dominated that much at Anfield for a long, long time. Was it um, because they, they scored in the third minute and, and decided, OK, you can have the ball from now on? Or was it because... Tottenham really outplayed them because really, if you if you know if you look at it, you know Liverpool don't have a player like Moussa Dembele, um, you know, or, or Eriksson at, at linking the play, and that they didn't have the quality to cope. Yeah, I think it, I think the first half you can probably say that it was Liverpool said right, we've got this goal, we are now happy to play on the break. That suits us. It doesn't suit you. We're going to try and congest the centre, so you'll have to go wide. We're pretty confident that, that Van Dijk and Lovren can, can deal with the threat that you can pose in the air. And for the first 45 minutes, it worked. Um, and then the second half, Spurs seemed to play a bit more on the front, on the front foot. They seemed, Liverpool seemed to cede a bit too much territory. They couldn't quite get into a rhythm. They couldn't, um, they couldn't stop the ball continually coming back at them. And I actually thought they, they, they resisted pretty well, Liverpool, given that there's this self-fulfilling narrative that whenever Liverpool concede a goal, it's proof of Liverpool's sort of flakiness and their fragility. I actually think that what, what happened in the second half yesterday, when they had no control in midfield at all, after, particularly after he took Henderson on, um, that you actually saw the defence is pretty solid. You know, they, they didn't give up that many chances. There were one or two um, that Carrius dealt with pretty well. Um, and then you get this, this goal of a lifetime from Victor Wanyama, which I know that there was there was an element of criticism towards Carrius, particularly on the um, on the Sky comment. Because what what else could Victor Wanyama have been expected to do there other than smash it into the top corner from you know nearly thirty yards with the shot of a lifetime? With the outside of his boot bending away, it's sort of Roberto Carlos esque goal from Victor Wanyama, recently introduced substitute and defensive midfielder. Yeah, it's, 
The thing about the carriers, there was, a, I think the comment, I forget who the commentator was, Martin Tyler, I presume, right. said that Gary Neville had been explaining what carriers could have done better. Jamie Redknapp, I think, had said that he was abominable or something. Right. Um, and Tyler said, oh, well, you know, the goal has been scored, so blame has been apportioned. And that is the most accurate but depressing <laughs> sort of summation of the way we see football now. Yeah. That Victor Wanyama scores a, a, a curling, swerving, 30-yard, outside-of-the-boot shot, first time, that's goal of the month, you know, goal of the season contender potentially. And the first thing we, we, we all have to do is apportion blame. It's, that, that is not the way to interpret that goal. Could Carries have caught it? Maybe. But then he was flying out to meet a really good cross Merritson, kind of hor- parallel to the ground. I couldn't catch that. Could Martin Tyler? I don't think he could. Could Gary Neville? I doubt it. So maybe let's not be too harsh on Loris Carries for punching it away. There is a, there's a question mark, I think, was it, was it Emre Chan who didn't quite clear it? Yeah. I think if there's a question mark anywhere, it's, it's, it's there that Chan didn't help it on. But ultimately, sometimes people score goals and it happens. You can't, you can't point the finger every single time somebody scores a goal. It's, it, it's not healthy, and to be honest, it's, it's quite miserable. Yeah. Um, Emery Chan, I, I would agree that if, if anyone was at fault, um, it was him. Although, again, it's, the consequences were, were out of proportion to the, to the crime, I think. You know, just sort of missing, missing a ball. You don't expect this quality of finish. But, um, I mean, his situation is still, um, is still undecided. I mean, there was, there was kind of strong reports a while ago that, you know, he's, he's agreed to join Juventus and so on. It doesn't actually appear to have sealed that yet. But... Um, I don't know if anyone at Liverpool is, is so confident that he's going to be there next season. Do you think that they really should be trying harder to keep this guy? Is he of the required level? Do you think? I mean, that was a game yesterday in which um, uh, really Tottenham won the battle in his area of the field. They did, they did, and I think if you if you looked at the respective midfield, although I think Eric Dyer had quite a poor game as well, um, before, certainly before he went into into defence, the. Um, Spurs' midfielders looked a, a cut above Liverpool's, regardless of the combination. I was really surprised that Oxley chamberlain didn't start, I've got to admit. Um, and I, th- I always think Liverpool looked a bit better with, with Van Alden in, in midfield as well. Uh, although Milner and Henderson did, did, did fine, you couldn't particularly fault their performances. But there was certainly a... Spurs' midfield was a cut above Liverpool's. And I, I felt for a while that part of the problem that Liverpool had in central defence is because of the problem they have in central midfield. That if they had an Emmanuel Matic-type player... Liverpool's central defence would not look so flaky as it has done at times. Uh, the Emre Chan thing is weird. I, I think there's a tendency now, if a player's not a 10 out of 10, world-class, best player in the world, superstar, there is a tendency to think he's useless. There doesn't seem to be any kind of... The category of he's quite a good player seems to have disappeared in the last five, five or ten years. I think Chan is a, is a good midfielder. I don't think losing him would be disastrous for Liverpool but losing him on a free is is careless. I think that's probably fair to say. And it's it, you know if they were going to sell him for thirty million pounds to Juventus, that's different. If you're going to lose him on a free, having put five years into him, into developing him into a not necessarily top quality midfielder, but a, a, a perfectly good top four, top six Premier League central midfielder, uh, then I think that's a bit of a, a bit of a waste. I can understand why he wants to go to an extent. I think his game might be better suited to Serie A than it is to England. He needs a little bit more time than maybe he gets in the Premier League. And I, it wouldn't surprise me if he kind of goes on to replace Sammy Kadira at Juventus uh, and, and excels. I don't think that would necessarily say that he has excelled at Liverpool. He's been very good at times and a bit less good at other times. Kind of seven and a half out of ten midfielder. 
uh, is the way I kind of think of Emre Chan. Um, but letting his contract run down and get to this stage is careless from Liverpool without a shadow of a doubt. Because you're allowing an asset to depreciate when you don't need to, and that, that money could potentially be in re- reinvested into the team. It, that said, it could be one of those where Chan goes and does brilliantly at Juve, and Liverpool use his absence and the wages he's freed up to sign a midfielder who does the job that they need someone to do in midfield, just to hold hold the team together, just to calm things down a little bit, to, to manage the game, who does the job better. So it may well be that Chan goes and he succeeds and Liverpool get better because he's gone, if you see what I mean. It may be a kind of nobody loses transfer. Well, uh, I suppose they can all hope for that. But the, just the last thing is, this is uh, something which occurred to me watching it, uh, watching the, the extent to which Spurs... Uh, Dominated and obviously Tottenham are, are fifth in the table, but kind of you know, pretty well positioned to get into the top four. And you know, people when they speak about this, they watch people on TV talking about it, and, and they do seem to think Liverpool are the most vulnerable side. And I kind of beginning to agree with that now. It struck me that maybe this is quite an average team which is being which, which has actually been lifted into a false position by an insane scoring streak. From one player, I mean, what Mo- what Mohamed Salah is doing is is ridiculous. You know, it's like in the the kind of league of scoring feats of Vardy a couple of seasons ago. I mean, it's it's kind of up there. You know, they they've got a player who scored nearly as many league goals as Harry Kane. You know, of the, of the Harry Kane team, but like nobody sort of looks at Salah as you know, nobody sort of looks at Liverpool as a as you know the Salah team. But that's really what they have been this season. I mean, if, if if it hadn't been for him and the kind of individual goals that he's been scoring, they would be nowhere. That's true. Uh, and I think there is a reliance on him that, that, that may be a problem when teams start to double and triple mark him. But the one thing I would say is that is there not a kind of balanced thing? So I, Sadio Mane is playing relatively poorly this season. He's had moments where he's played quite well. But I think that's because the focus, particularly in the first half of the season, was very much on teams stopping Mane. Uh, and now it, it may well shift to stopping Salah, at which point it might be that Mane is the one who gets space. There's a, there's a limit to what you can do to double and triple mark two or three people, because at some point you run out of players uh, and space opens up elsewhere. So it, I know what you mean, and I think Liverpool have... I, th- I, I don't know if they're the most vulnerable. I, of Chelsea, Liverpool, Arsenal and Spurs... I'm not entirely sure which two I think will get into the Champions League. I think it'll be pretty tight. Uh, the, the North London derby on Saturday is fairly central to that because if, if Arsenal lose, you, you kind of have to say they might be gone. Um, if it's a draw and Liverpool beat Southampton, then that kind of gives Liverpool a bit of breathing space. But it'll go. It'll be really tight. It'll go right to the wire. There's not a vast amount between any of those four teams, I don't think. Um, they all have strengths and weaknesses. In terms of Liverpool's attack, you wonder how many of Salah's goals are scored because the defence also has to worry about Firmino and Mane. That would be the only thing I'd say. That if there was no other threat at all, then you could much more easily say this is a, a scoring streak. It's either individual brilliance that he can sustain or it's a scoring streak that will, will come to an end. But my, my, my sense is that if Salah dips then perhaps the, Liverpool do have one or two other players, because Coutinho's gone, not three other players, who might be able to fill in. So if, if Salah suddenly finds himself squeezed out by teams, then that might mean that Mane has a little bit more space or Firmino has a little bit more space. And that gives them enough of a threat to, to sustain it. I think the problem that Liverpool have gotten at the moment without Coutinho and before Naby Keita arrives is that their best their most creative player is the opposition's mistakes. 
that's the way Liverpool, that's what Liverpool are trying to get the opposition to do. They don't have anyone who can play a killer pass, so they're trying to make the opposition do it for them. And that might not work often enough for Liverpool to get the points that they'll need to get into the top four, given that the point total to get you in a top four place is going to be really high this season. Fair enough. Listen, Rory, best of luck with that campaign to ban talk on referees. And thanks very much for talking to us. Much appreciated. See if you don't get a result with Motherwell, you're away, mate. Your bags and your desk, boom. Your bags and your desk, boom. I mean it, I'm fucking raging, speaking from my heart. Who would I want in? I've got big Terry Butcher in. Mr. Tate, how you doing? Not too good after tonight. You got the job on the technicality of a legend who recommended you. Take no beat, I take no beat, I take no, I take no, I take no beat. Just so it's soft, don't try to get so deep. You know me, but I can't yell me. You have lost the fans tonight. You don't deserve the fans. Listen to fans. Just need to fucking work on it. You are nothing. You are a fool. And you are a waste of time. Good night. Oh, the Guinness Book of Records stuff. Get a grip! He's the biggest fool in Manchester. There's one more game, of course, Ken, in the Premier League. That takes place tonight. And it involves under pressure Chelsea manager Antonio Conte. How yeah. under pressure is it's? It seems as though he's putting himself under a lot of pressure, with yeah. by, by sort of picking fights with the Abramovich and the board and so on. Well, what he's now saying is that the is that the board haven't haven't backed him enough. So, so obviously there was this this whole um, uh, Chelsea transfer issues over the over January, where they kind of went for a succession of players. Didn't get them. Ended up with Giroud. Okay, Giroud is not is, is not a bad signing. I think you know in terms of he's scored a lot of goals in the Premier League. If you're looking for a substitute centre forward or maybe even a centre forward, yeah, Giroud is. I think Giroud is, is probably better than Andy Carroll, who was the name who came up before uh, before Giroud did. But he um, he's basically saying that. I mean, everyone seems to go, "Oh, Antonio, you're you're obviously leaving," and he's kind of like, "No, I'm not." Although it, nobody believes it. You know, it's a strange situation. I mean, there have been a lot of reports about Conte, you know, happy to go back to Italy. He sort of made his point. But, you know, all things considered, yeah, if, if I'm going back to Italy, it's not gonna be, I'm not going to be brokenhearted. But he's now kind of challenging Chelsea to end all this by putting out a statement saying they're... But, so he says, maybe I'd like the club to prepare a statement for me to tell uh, the media, I trust in his job, I trust in his work. But at the same time, I know in the past this never happened. And for this reason, why would I hope for something different? For sure, I think I'd like to have a statement to support against this speculation. Of course, the statement never does support against the speculation. All the statement does is confirm that there's a problem. And, you know, you never have a club putting out a statement supporting their manager and giving him a vote of confidence when things are going well. So uh, it's a strange thing for, for Conte to say. We'll wrap things up. We'll see you on the World Service tomorrow for US Murph on the Eagles' insane Super Bowl victory. In the meantime, thanks very much, Ken. Thanks very much, Kieran. Thank you. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Owen. thanks, Ken. Thanks yeah. so much for listening. Talk to you soon. It's gone, is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys.